We're in week four of our series. We want to see Jesus. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who have faced many challenges of heart and mind, a group of people who are learning what it meant to to persevere and endure in the Christian life. And the answer week by week has been to see Jesus, to see Jesus as he really is in all his glory as our Lord and Savior. Today we pick this up in verse 14 of chapter 4. We'll read through to the end of verse 10 in chapter 5. So let's read this section of God's Word together. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. I'm really not um, a very good cook. I do okay if it's kind of like a scientific approach where I can follow a recipe to the kind of nth degree. I have absolutely no knowledge, though, what to do if we don't have a particular ingredient or what might substitute, what might replace. Um, I just, you know, I I can sort of do okay, but it's really not one of my strong points. Uh, One of the things I did learn, though, that um, great meals require great ingredients. If you want to make a really tasty meal, you have to go and get great ingredients. You cannot make a steak dinner if all you have is bologna. You've got to take the time, you've got to spend the money to go out and get those great ingredients that you might make a great meal. And there's something very similar when it comes to applying the gospel to our own lives. A great gospel practical application begins with rich theology. You can't have a good meal without good ingredients, and you can't have good application without rich theology. Yes, we could sit here and strategize and come up with, you know, five principles to help you in this area of your life. But if those principles don't find their their roots in, in the rich theology of the gospel, then we're just serving up bologna. Now, we may be serving up bologna on nice china, but that is uh, what we're doing nonetheless. Similarly, if you uh, just dwell on the theology and never uh, move to practical application, uh, then you're you're missing something there as well. It's like preparing a great steak steak dinner, uh, setting it on the counter, and and never eating it, never 
tasting it, never getting your senses around it to uh, literally internalize it uh, and enjoy it in that way. A great meal requires great ingredients, and practical gospel application requires rich theology. And this passage in Hebrews, it gives us both. It gives us a rich theology of Christ as our high priest, and then practical gospel application in light of it. And that's how we're going to order our time together. We're going to look at the rich theology, then we're going to look at the practical application. And listen, I hope everything I've said is beginning to convince you already, but please, when I say rich theology, don't think this is going to be boring okay? Um, Theology is the the source of life to our souls. It is the winds that bring uh, refreshing to our hearts. And so uh, let's look at this text, see the rich theology, and then the practical application that it gives us. First then, the rich theology, and four headings as we work our way through this. First heading is just the background, the background to this text. We are entering a section in the book of Hebrews that runs from here in verse 14 of chapter chapter 4 right through to the end of chapter 7. And this section of Hebrews focuses upon Jesus's superiority over the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus's superiority over the Old Testament priesthood. What on earth does that mean? Well, back in the Old Testament, God appointed priests to represent the people before him. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. We read, Every high priest is chosen from among men, appointed by God, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. God appointed these priests to represent the people before him. Now, they had a long list of responsibilities uh, on how worship was to be ordered. We get a very, very uh, detailed description, very elaborate description of all the responsibilities in the book of Leviticus. That's what Leviticus is, is really about, a, 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 a book designed to teach us how we can approach God. I know this is one of your favorite devotional books, so you're just right here with me. Um, but you get very elaborate responsibilities, but then their, their main responsibility was to come and offer sacrifice. Again, we see that in verse 1. They act on behalf of men, offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. We need someone to be in between us and God, offering sacrifices for our sins. God is holy. God is pure. He is good. There is no sin in him. There is no darkness in him. There is nothing about him that is not beautiful and pure and good. And yet, we ourselves are are not that way. And we know that. We know that within our hearts and with our own souls, that there is much sin there. And so, we can't just enter God's presence without severe consequences. It's almost like, imagine you have, have an enemy, okay? Someone who really doesn't like you, and you maybe don't even know why they don't like you, but they really go out their way to make your life difficult. And they gossip about you at work, and they tell your colleagues and your boss all sorts of things about you uh, that aren't true. And then uh, they get on Facebook, and they tell the entire world all sorts of things about you that, that aren't true. And then you arrive one, home one day, and they're sitting outside your house, and they say, oh, I've, I've just come over for some lunch. What are you going to think? You're going to think, you're my enemy. You can't just come on here and expect me to be gracious and and kind to you. There's a a disconnect here. And in the exact same way, we don't just roll up to the Lord and expect that everything's going to be fine and hunky-dory when we know that we have been rebels against him. So because God knows this, because he knows that we can't just come before his face, he appoints these priests to represent us before him. 
It's not unlike having a lawyer. If you've been charged with a crime, then you are taken to court. You want a lawyer to to represent you there. Real life is not like TV. Representing yourself will not go well, and you know that you must have someone who knows what they're doing and can make a case for you before the judge. And that's what the priests did. They came before the Lord and made a case for the people. Now, there were lots of priests, uh, hundreds of them, but there was also one high priest, one priest who was uh, the the chief amongst uh, the priests. He was like the chief partner in the law firm, say. And he was responsible for a variety of things, but most especially and uniquely, he was the one that was charged with going into the most holy place. This is a a section of the tabernacle where the Israelites worshipped that you only went in once a year, and that's where God made his, his presence known. And once a year, the high priest would go in there before the face of God, and he would offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was this covering over the ark of the Lord that was kept in the most holy place. And this was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat to call out for forgiveness of sins. So solemn uh, a task was this, that when the high priest went into the most holy place, they tied a rope around his leg. Why? So that if he sinned and died before the presence of the Lord, they would be able to pull him out without themselves entering into that place. The sacred place where he performed the sacred sacrifice on the mercy seat for forgiveness of sins. So as we think about this rich theology, there's a bit of background to the Old Testament priesthood. Secondly, we see verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5 tell us that the office of high priest had two specific qualifications. Not anybody could be a high priest. There were two specific things that you had to do in order to be qualified for this position. First of all, the high priest had to be able to sympathize with those that he represents. Sympathize with those that he represents. We see this in verse 1, first of all, where we read that high priests are chosen from among men. In order to represent men and women, the high priest had to be human himself. He had to come from among the people. Um, It's kind of like, I can never be president of the United States of America. My son Seamus can be. Why? I am not from among the people. I was not born in this country. Seamus was born in this country. He is from among the people. And the first president, Seamus, would not not be cool, right? Um, He is from this group, and therefore he can represent this group. I am not from this group, and therefore I cannot represent uh, this group. This idea then is developed, verse 2. He himself, we read, is beset uh, uh, with weakness, so that he can do what? Deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He's to come from the people, and he's also to understand weakness so that he can deal gently with people who are struggling. We tend to be very harsh on people who struggle with things that we don't struggle with. You know, we have our set of issues that we do wrestle with, and we can be compassionate to other people who struggle in those same ways, but with people who struggle with things that we don't ourselves particularly struggle with, we tend to be very judgmental and very harsh. This is why often people who who have never suffered with anxiety or with depression can be very harsh on people that have. They think, hey, what's wrong? You know, things aren't that bad. Buck up, cheer up, stop worrying, get on with life. It's all going to be okay with no compassion, no sensitivity for the complex issues that are going on in that person's life, uh, both uh, personally, biologically, across the board. 
very easy for us to be harsh on people who struggle with things that, that we don't. And God knows this. And so he says, the high priest, he needs to be someone who understands weakness. He needs to be someone who can sympathize with those who are uh, struggling. He needs to be able to come alongside those uh, who, are, who are having a hard time. He must be conversant with their struggles, subject to their weaknesses. In order to be high priest, you had to be able to sympathize with the weaknesses of those you were representing. Second qualification comes in verse 4 of chapter 5, where we read that, yes, the high priest had to be able to sympathize, but he also had to be divinely appointed. No one takes this honor, we read, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In Jesus' day, and by the time Hebrews was written, the office of high priest was controlled by a family who had bought it. They had gone out and paid money so that they could have control of this important office. For 200 years preceding that, it had been a history of, of bribery and corruption and politics that the office had passed from one to another. And this text says, it ought not be so. The office of high priest is not something that you can buy. You must be divinely appointed to it. Legitimate candidates were called by God, just as Aaron was, the first high priest, and as his heirs and successors were. To represent the people then, you had to be able to sympathize with weakness, and you had to be appointed to God. Third heading is under our rich theology, and here we start getting to Jesus. Verse 15 of chapter 4 and verses 5 through 10 of chapter 5 tell us that Jesus meets these qualifications. Jesus meets these qualifications. He is, first of all, able to sympathize with those he represents. We get given two reasons for this. First of all, he is able to sympathize with those he represents because he was tempted as we are verse 15 of chapter 4. Read it with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We reflected upon this idea a couple of weeks ago when we thought of Jesus as our brother and as our friend, and here the text picks up this idea again and and, uh, develops it to reinforce this idea that Jesus has experienced all the temptations that we endure. Jesus has gone through all the temptations that we endure. Now, someone might say, Jesus didn't have the, you know, the struggles that we have in our day. He didn't have the hectic pace of life and the dangers of technology and such pluralism and secularism. And, you know, he, he didn't really have all the temptations we do. But, you know, we know there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new under the sun. The, the categories are the same. The manifestations just look slightly different. Everything that we endure, Jesus endured before us. Whatever you are struggling with, Jesus struggled with too. Frustration, disappointment, or pain, uh, loneliness, or weariness, or or bitterness, or grief, um, any sort of doubt, or fear, or anxiety, uh, concerns about your future, concerns about your finances, concerns about your kids, all of these uh, temptations that come to us, Jesus was uh, familiar with. There is no danger or sorrow or trial that can come our way that he does not understand. He was tempted as we are. And someone else might say, okay, but read the end of the verse, because it says he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. I don't know about you, but if someone has never sinned, I'm really not sure they can understand me, okay? Uh, If he had these temptations, but he passed all of these temptations, does he really understand just how hard temptation is? The answer, of course, is that his faithfulness means he was tempted more than we are. His faithfulness means he was tempted more than we are. So often we don't experience extreme temptation. Why? Because we give in. 
So a silly example. You really want the cookie. You resist for three minutes, then you eat the cookie, right? So you have endured three minutes of temptation, okay? Uh, more seriously, you're, you're tempted to sexual sin, and you resist, and you fight, and you battle, but then you fall into it. And so our experience of temptation is limited because it is so brief. But Jesus never sinned. Two quotes for you. First of all, by B.F. Westcott, the commentator. Sympathy with the sinner. Jesus' sympathy with the sinner. It does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Another quote from C.S. Lewis, the master in making difficult things seem clear. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted, tempted more than we ever are, because, precisely because he never sinned. Secondly, our text tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he suffered as we do. Look with me at verse 7, first of all. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This takes us back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is crying out to the Lord that he might be delivered from the cup of wrath that awaits him. He cries out to the Lord that he might be spared this tribulation. And such was his angst, such was his suffering that in Matthew 26 we read that his his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And you may know what that experience is like, to, to suffer so much that you just think you can't take it any longer. Uh, I remember attending a funeral where uh, a child had died and to hear the mother's cry, she was enduring a suffering to the point of death. Things in my own experience, you have things in your own experience that have just brought you so low. You have suffered so much that you don't know if you can take it any longer. And Jesus experienced that. He had this darkness of soul. He had this suffering. And so he can understand you when you are suffering. This idea is actually developed in verse 8, where we read that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. A very interesting phrase, that Jesus would learn obedience. What what does that mean? Because surely he wasn't disobedient before, right? It's getting at the idea that that Jesus learned obedience and that he obeyed to a new degree or to a new extent. There were areas in his life before that he would not had to obey in, and now in his human sufferings, he went there. Um, it's sort of the difference, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, between doing premarital counseling and being married. Sit in the office and talk about love one another, sacrifice, put each other first, Jesus loved the church, blah, 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 blah. Get married, that's really difficult, okay? It turns out that loving someone else is hard. Turns out that sacrifice is hard. Turns out putting someone else first 
is really hard. Turns out that though Jesus loves his church and the church loves him, it's not that easy to apply in our marriages. And so, yeah, we can sit around and talk about these things, but it's not until you experience it that you learn to love in that way. And in the same way, Jesus learned obedience and that he entered into new areas, new experiences, and in those, it was faithful and obedient. And so he knows what it's like to suffer in a wide variety of circumstances and how to endure that suffering faithfully. So Jesus meets this first qualification. He is able to be a high priest because he can sympathize with us. Why? Because he was tempted as we are and because he has suffered as we have. Secondly, he also meets that other uh, qualification in that he was divinely appointed to the office. Read verse 5 and 6 of chapter 5 with me. And so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amazing idea that Jesus, though he is the Lord of all, the creator of all, the king of all, has rule and reign over all things, even Jesus didn't presume to take this office upon himself. He didn't, even though he is the Lord, he didn't use his authority to lord it over other people. He knew, as one of my mentors often tells me, that authority was given to him for the benefit of those who were entrusted to his care. And so even Jesus doesn't set himself up as high priest, but is... um, appointed to uh, the position by God the Father, as the scriptures that are quoted then show. Uh, they mention Melchizedek. We're going to get into Melchizedek in a couple of weeks' time. He's a very interesting and difficult figure who appears in the pages of Hebrews here. I'm glad to have a few more weeks to study up on that uh, before, before we talk about that, but we will, we will get there together in, in chapter 7 point is for today that Jesus was divinely appointed to his office. So, step back. What have we seen so far? Background, Old Testament background of the priesthood, those who are elected to represent the people before God. Secondly, in order to be a high priest, you had to be able to sympathize with people, understand their pains, understand their weaknesses, and you had to be appointed to that uh, office by the Lord. Thirdly, Jesus meets these qualifications. He does sympathize with us. Why? Because he's been tempted as we are and because he has suffered uh, as we have. And secondly, he was appointed uh, to that office by the Lord. Takes us to the fourth thing under a rich theology, which is simply this. Jesus is our true and greater high priest. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And every other priest in the Bible was just pointing to the time when Jesus would come as our ultimate high priest. And what does he come to do? He comes to do the same thing the Old Testament priest did, represent us before God by offering sacrifices for our sins. He's the true high priest, but he's the greater high priest. Why? Because he doesn't just pass into the most holy place. He passes, verse 14 of chapter 4 says, through the heavens. He doesn't just sprinkle blood on the mercy seat within the holy place. He enters into the very throne room of God and he sprinkles blood on the throne of grace so that by the sacrifice of his body and of his blood, our sins might be forgiven. He comes to be this great high priest, standing between us and the Lord, representing us before God by sacrificing himself. And result of this, verse 16 of chapter 4, we are able to draw near with confidence, receiving mercy and finding grace. We receive mercy. This means 
that we don't get what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Not getting what we deserve. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of those things that we do every day, we deserve punishment. But Christ as our priest has taken that punishment upon himself so that we won't get what we deserve. More than that, we receive mercy and we find grace. If mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Uh, Meaning, it's not just that our account is credited to neutral, but that God has lavished, yes, mercy and forgiveness upon us, but now lavishes out grace, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It is not that we are merely forgiven, it's that we're drawn into his family, that we're accepted as sons and daughters, that we are uh, given all the encouragements of life in Christ. Because he is our priest, we receive this mercy, we find this grace. This is the rich theology that our section contains. Jesus as our Savior is our high priest. It's a great meal because we have great ingredients. But what do we do with it? Uh, What does this meal uh, taste like? Let's move to look at that together. The practical application that comes from this reality. Okay, Jesus is our high priest. What does that mean? Uh, Three things to look at uh, very briefly. First of all, because Jesus is our high priest, we approach God with honesty. Because Jesus is our high priest, we approach God with honesty. Jesus sympathizes with you. He understands what it's like to be you. He understands your temptation and he understands your suffering. He gets you and he understands you so you can be real with him. You can come into his presence and be honest about what's going on in your heart and in your mind. This is, of course, important at the very beginning of the Christian life. In many ways, this is how you become a Christian. You come into his presence, and you're honest with him about your sins and about your failings. And you say, Lord, there are all these things that I'm not proud of and all these things that I regret, and I don't know what to do about them other than to ask you for forgiveness. I'm not going to pretend that I'm okay anymore. I'm going to be honest and acknowledge that I'm not. Would you forgive me for my sins? That's how you become a Christian in the first place. But then it's also how we carry on the Christian life. Uh, We don't become Christians through honesty and then live as Christians through some sort of pretense, right? We're honest with the Lord as we come before him. And, 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 And do you do that? You know, how often are you just brutally honest with God? You know, Reformed people, we don't do very well at this. Because we allow our theology to act as a hedge around what we're really feeling. And so, yes, there are times when you're excited about the Lord and you're excited about your relationship with him, and you should enjoy those times. But there are other times you feel a bit ambivalent. God seems distant, seems a bit disconnected. Other times when you feel just outright cynical. You're not really sure how the Lord's at work and if there is any relevance of this gospel thing to your day-to-day life or to the thing that you're struggling with. All of us feel all those things in the course of any given week. Excited, ambivalent, cynical. And the Lord is, is calling us as our high priest, as the one who sympathizes with us to come into his presence without shame, without pretense. We live in a world that specializes in pretending to be something that it's not, in living up to expectations in our academics, in our careers, in our relationships, in our, in our families, in obsessing about our appearances so that we can uh, you know, fixate on, fixate on our weight, fixate on our appearance, fixate on how others perceive us. We uh, specialize in pretending to be something that we're not. And because Jesus is our high priest, we put that down as part of the rest that we spoke about last week. We exhale into, ah, I don't have to pretend. 
I can be real. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. Thank you that you understand me. I'm not coming before you to try and appease you because you're angry with me. I'm approaching you with honesty, real being, uh, coming as I really am uh, before your throne of grace. When you think of Christianity, don't, and and as as you come to the Lord, don't come playing a role. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't come acting like some sort of holy prayer person where you're going to use a certain set of vocabulary and say a certain set of things. Play the role of yourself. Okay? Pray, play the role of yourself before the Lord. Come to him with honesty because he sympathizes with you. Secondly, because Jesus is our high priest, we approach God with confidence. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Uh, he is for us, and so we have confidence. Uh, you feel confident when uh, you feel like you've got what it takes. feel like you've got what it takes to deal with a certain situation. That's one definition of, of confidence. When you feel like things are going to be okay because you've got what it takes. So public speaking is high on most people's list of fears when it comes to uh, lacking confidence. It is also high on my own list of fears for lacking confidence. And so, you know, how would you feel... If I just called your name out now and said, stand up and talk to us for 10 minutes about a topic of your choosing, right? And I kind of scan the pews now, right? Look around. And some of you are thinking, I'd be really good at that, okay? Okay, how would you feel if I asked you to stand up and dance? Or sing a solo of our closing song, right? Feel that kind of like, you know, <laughs> some faces are thinking, he's not going to do it, is he? He's going to do it? <laughs> he won't do it. He might do it. <laughs> and that's exactly the feeling I'm talking about, okay? That nervousness that we don't have, have what it takes. I am nervous about doing all three of those things. Um, Jesus, as our high priest, gives us confidence to come into God's presence. Why? Not because we have it, what it takes to stand before him, but because he has what it takes to stand before him. We don't come into his presence with some sort of brash hubris. We come into his presence confident because we are with him. It's not that we have everything together. It's that Jesus has everything together. I I feel like we sometimes, and I, I know I do in my own heart and soul, really underestimate the extent of Christ's salvation for us. It's like the, the, the depth of the gospel that we get to mine uh, with one another. That, that Jesus isn't before the Father saying, you know, they belong to me, and I know they've messed up again today, but can you just forgive them again? They're, they're trying their best, and I want to help them out. Forgive them. God sort of furrows his brow and looks at his divine clipboard and checks and says, okay, but let's see how he's doing next week, okay? So next week, Jesus comes back and he says, you know, he's made a lot more mistakes, but he's trying hard. Just, you know, let's let him off one more time. And God sort of does, right? We receive mercy and grace from Christ, but Christ is before the Father, not arguing in a negative sense for mercy, but in a positive sense for justice. Christ is before the Father and he's saying, yes, they have sinned in grievous ways and they deserve to be punished. And Everything they deserve has been fully paid for by me. So you may not punish them for this because I have paid that debt. And it would be unfair and uh, immoral and unjust for you to punish them and hold this sin against them because I have paid for it on their behalf. They belong to me and I belong to them and they're mine and I love them. And the father, is he pleased with the son's sacrifice? Of course he is pleased with the son's sacrifice. 
He was part of bringing it about. He accepts it gladly and joyfully. He has uh, that divine smile to welcome his children into his presence. And so as we come into God's presence, we come in with this sense of confidence. We approach him with confidence, not because we're where it's at, but because we're with Jesus, because he is our priest, because he has paid the sacrifice that we needed. So we come with honesty, we come with confidence, and then lastly, we come with humility. Come with humility. Where do we get this from? Look with me at verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, going back to Gethsemane, where Jesus cried out that he would be delivered from the wrath that was to come. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Now, this is a strange verse because Jesus cried out to be delivered, and then he died. He went from Gethsemane straight to the cross, and there he was hung and bled and died. So in what sense was he delivered? In what sense was he heard because of his reverence? We know that God did deliver Jesus from death. He just did through, so through resurrection. In other words, Jesus' prayer is answered, just not in the way we might expect. And so when we approach God with honesty and as we approach him with confidence, we approach him with patience, recognizing that he will hear us because we are his children, but he might not answer in the way that we had envisaged. He might not bring things about as we had uh, hoped that they would. Um, John Newton, 18th century hymn writer, wrote Amazing Grace. And my favorite uh, hymn of his is called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And I love those words because it kind of sums up the, the best moments of our Christianity, the best moments of our faith, those times where we, we really want to know the Lord and we want to know him better. And the second verse says, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray," meaning, it was the Lord that gave me the grace to even have this desire to grow. It was he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But he has done in such a way that almost brought me to despair. And how often is that our experience? That the Lord grows you and blesses you and you flourish through the trial and difficulty of suffering. I know from my own short experience, those moments of spiritual maturity are all directly related to deep sorrow and hardship. Because Jesus is at work in those things to bring about his perfect will on our behalf. And so we have humility because we come to God recognizing, God, I'm honest with you. You know what I'm like. And I'm confident because I know that you love me. But I'm humble because I don't know how, how this should really work out best. Einstein said that uh, Isaac Newton was the greatest mind that had ever lived uh, for his uh, uh, contributions to uh, physics and math and astronomy and philosophy and more. And uh, Isaac Newton, toward the end of his life, uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he said of himself, I'm as a boy standing on a beach having collected some nice pebbles. And out there 
is an ocean of unknown. So the greatest mind who ever lived recognized that he'd barely scratched the surface here. And that's how we approach God. Lord, hear my pebbles. <laughs> but I trust that you know how this should work out. I trust, it's funny, <laughs> that you're better at being God than I am, right? And that you know how this situation should work out better than I do. I trust that you are the alchemist, so even my suffering can be turned for gold. And you're at work to do those things, and I'm confident of that because of Jesus. You see how these things come together? We come with this honesty and this confidence, but also with this uh, humility. I don't know what it is you're wrestling with this morning. I don't know the situation, the sorrow, the pain, the difficulty that you just wish would go away. The Lord's at work even in that uh, to turn it to gold. We combine these things together, uh, humility uh, with confidence and honesty, and we get a model for prayer, a model for how we should pray. And I really appreciate and I'm helped by having models or structures for prayer. You know, how many of you pray, you go to bed and you start to pray and the next thing you know, the alarm clock goes off in the morning, okay? It's really easy for our prayers to wonder and for our prayers to be unstructured and for us not to have, have focus. And so uh, this is a, a model for prayer that I, I hope, you'll find, hope you'll find helpful. And I really do hope you'll find it helpful because you know, the pastor's job is to get as people to deal with God, right? Not really with him, but, but with God. And this provides you a model to go and deal with God. Whatever the circumstance is, whatever the struggle is, whatever the trial that you're wrestling with, whether it's something in your family or that big meeting or whatever it is, come to the Lord with honesty and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. This isn't easy for me. I'm finding this difficult. Uh, I am grateful that you sympathize with me and my weakness. And as I come to you, Lord, though, I'm confident because I know you're for me and I know you love me and I know that you've proved those things beyond doubt. And so I come, um, yes, with these fears, but, but trusting them to you. But I also come with humility, Lord, not presuming to tell you how to do your job, but trusting that you know what's best and that you will turn even my suffering to gold. Use that as a prayer to, to work through and apply the rich theology of this text uh, in your own life and soul. A great meal starts with great ingredients. Rich gospel application starts with rich theology. This passage gives us both Jesus is our high priest, so we can approach God with honesty, with confidence, with humility. Let's do that together right now. Lord, as we approach you, we we're just grateful that we can be real with you. We're grateful that we can be honest, that you understand us because you have been tempted and suffered just as we have even more than we have. We come with confidence as children drawing near to a father because you have uh, paid the sacrifice that proves your love. We need not fear that we will not be heard because we speak uh, with the accents of your children. And that, Lord, we come with humility as children, not knowing uh, what is best, but trusting you to be at work in our hearts and in our lives uh, to draw us closer to you and even turn our sufferings to gold. We pray all these things, grateful in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.